Bean Dad, The Dress, 30 to 50 Feral Hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying a, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, Love at first, first listen. listen. We're older, we're wiser, and we're podcasting through a new decade of our lives. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. And getting to the heart of our stories. We're going places we've never gone before, and we're bringing you along with us. With new segments, correspondence, and a brand new sound. Season 9 is kicking off with an intimate interview with Grammy Award-winning singer-songwriter Natalia Laforcade. What's giving you hope right now? Well, when I see what music does to people it gives me a lot of hope if you liked locatora before you're gonna love season nine subscribe to our show and you'll see why locatora is your prima's favorite podcast listen to locatora radio as part of the michael Cultura podcast network available on the iHeartRadio app apple podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. Well, how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, Jesus Christ. I'm Robert Evans, host of Behind the Bastards. Apparently. Um, opening this podcast poorly. Uh, I'm distracted right now because there are two kittens in my house. There's two of them, and they're kittens, and they're playing. And uh, I'm also horribly allergic to cats, but I refuse to not have them in my house. So this is going to be quite an episode, uh, R.E., me being allergic and then being distracted by kittens. Anyway, when I don't have a house full of kittens, this is a podcast about the very worst people in all of history. Um, and today we're doing one of our now classic reverse episodes where somebody reads me a terrible story about a bastard. And to 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 do that, to tell us another tale of woe and whimsy is our old friend Christopher. Christopher, how are you doing today? Doing doing pretty good. We are. It's cherry season. We're we're, we're doing the cherries. We're picking cherries. It's oh hell yeah yeah. Well, you live in in the frigid Midwest, and I live in the Pacific Northwest, and we both have cherry. We're just dripping with cherries. Yeah, which is is a sign <laughs> of the perfection of the cherry plant. It's a it's a really powerful 
It's a really powerful organism. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the, the amazing thing about cherries is I feel like a lot of different fruit plants, you get like, you get some fruit and you're like, oh, is that it? Is that all the work that I put in this year for, for this fruit? Like, but fucking cherry trees, you get like, you're dripping with cherries. You get too many cherries off of any given cherry tree. And I think that's beautiful. You know what else I think is beautiful, Christopher? What, what, do, you, what, do, what do you think is beautiful, Robert? I think naming kittens is beautiful. And Sophie and I have a little bit of a disagreement here. See, I want to call them Saddam Hussein and Saddam Hussein's best friend. And Sophie says, no, that's a horrible name for two kittens. Uh, So, you know, listeners, I guess what I'm asking you to do is find Sophie online and tell her that I'm right. Tell her that I've picked the proper name. I told you to name them Sophie and and Sophie. I, I mean, like they, 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 Sophie, that's a ridiculous name for a cat. Both, both are both. Saddam both Hussein and Saddam are, Hussein's op- best friend. Good cat names. Both options are dictators. Yeah, that is true. I, I will say the, the, the double Sophie has the advantage of the fact that the cats are indistinguishable. And so they are indistinguishable. You cannot tell the difference between them. They both look exactly the same. Little black cats, little baby like black I've cats. I earned the right to be, uh, you know, I've put in the time. Like, I feel like at least one should be named Sophie. Well, we'll think about this. I like the idea of a stranger comes over to my house and the cat does something bad and I shout, Saddam Hussein's best friend! Get down from there! Uh, you have to set yourself up for success is the point I'm making. Um, and and speaking of setting ourselves up for t- success, I've set myself up for success today by having Chris research the episode. <laughs> so the the subject of today's episode is the 2008 tainted milk scandal. And th- this is going to be a fun oh, one. Oh, hell yeah. Yeah, this, this is an I exciting I love a episode. good tainted milk scandal. Yeah. Oh my God, are a lot of babies going to die? Are we are we talking like serious dead baby territory here? I, okay, so we'll, we'll, we'll put this at the beginning. I shouldn't have asked that the, way. That's a horrible the, way to ask if a bunch of babies died. Yeah, so the number of babies who are poisoned is extremely high. The death toll is That's not good. as high as you would think think from the number of the sheer number of babies who are poisoned but it is a it is a very large it's a very large number of poisoned babies i mean that sounds like the best case scenario is 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 horrible thing happens not a lot of babies die but we have a horrible thing to discuss this job has broken my brain chris um just 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 (laughs) fundamentally destroyed me as a as an empathetic human being let's uh let's 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 start the show i'm i'm excited to learn about the spoiled milk scandal um, and I'm sure that it was caused by people acting responsibly in just a freak accident that could never have been predicted or or prevented. <laughs> we, yeah, we we will we will see about that. <laughs> so in in 1956, the Chinese Communist Party's cadre in Hubei founded a dairy company called the Three Deer Company. Well, okay, and where's like Hubei? 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 Hubei is um. Hubei. Okay. Don't don't worry. You got to be real name. basic with me because I don't know. I don't know much at all about about Chinese geography. Yeah. So this is this is this is the province that Wuhan is in. Mm. Oh, okay. So like south, right? Uh, it's like kind of in the middle. Oh, okay. I thought Wuhan was. See again, not a Chinese geography knower. This yeah, is, this it's is like all useful. South, okay. It's like it's like kind of. It's I mean it's, so, it's it's in the like middle sort of of it's in like the the middle of the uh, uh, east of the country. The middle. Middle of okay, so Chinese St. Louis is kind of what you're telling me yeah, right now. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Geographically, I assume there's an arch. All right, so the the they they make this milk company. Yeah, and, and you know, for 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 most of what's uh, either called sort of the socialist period or the Mao period, lasting from CCP taking power in 1949 to Deng Xiaoping taking power in 1979, 
Three Deers is a it's a relatively sleepy and sort of minor like dairy farm and like what's what's really a minor agriculture industry. China China does not have a lot of milk. Like people people don't drink cow milk a lot in in you know mo- mo- most of this period. You know, and, and you know this is so this this is a state owned industry, and this means that you know it's given production targets by the state, and it largely meets those targets. And in return, the workers who work there get assigned these work points that you know they they, they get resources for them out of the allotment. Um, now, as the social system starts to fall apart, uh, the, the 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 relative sort of status of the three year company starts to change. Now, the, the social system. And when you say the social system, okay, you're explaining this. All right, good. Well, yeah. I, I I can go into a bit more. So so yeah, the, the socialist system it goes through a lot of changes, but the, the 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 basic principle of it is that like there's there's no market, right? There's no there's no market. Don't be selling anything. There's yeah. Lo- sometimes the national government, but mostly the local government, set these production targets, and the sort of state-owned companies or the labor brigades in, in rural areas like work to you know. You, so you get a production target, you assign to do it, and you make as much as like you have to. You take the production target. And you get you get assigned resources based on how much you can produce, and this this sort of works okay for like part of the 1950s, and but then there's a great leap forward, and you get the Cultural Revolution, and that just sort of knocks whatever legs are like left out of the system. But by the 1970s, basically the entire country and the entire economic system is just being held together by the military. And you know this is this is sort of a catastrophe. Things are decaying. But what, what's very what's very interesting about this is that it's not actually the famines or just like the massacres or any of the weird mango cults that like actually knock off the the sort of socialist period economy. It turns out that what what does it in is the class is the, the socialist period's class structure. Now now socialist period economic policy basically dictates that so you have these agricultural surpluses. In the countryside, you take all that grain and you plow into urban development in you know in the cities, so that China can build this like modern industrial economy. Uh, the consequence of this is that there's basically very little or basically no investment in rural areas, which means you get this like you, you get this massive economic disparity between the underdeveloped and poor countryside that you know the state's extracting grain from, and the richer, increasingly rich cities that consume the grain. And this this whole thing is made worse by what's called the hukou system. Which is this like the ecosystem is, is this is this is still in place to this day, although it's it's been modified somewhat. Um it's this internal passport where basically like where you or your family is born, you get you get registered to that place. And you can only get services like from basically the town or from, from the sort of local government that like you're registered to. And I mean and this this goes everything from like housing benefits to like social security to medical care. And you know, it's also uh has a lot to do with what kind of jobs you can get. So, you know, if you're if you have a hukou from a from an urban area, you get these very well funded sort of services and jobs in the city. But if you have a rural hukou, you're stuck with these absolute just third rate services, no employment opportunities. And the other thing with this is that when the famines start, the grain goes to the cities and not the countryside. And so, you know, this this goes on for a bit, but eventually, rural, like the, so the Chinese rural workers who are, who are doing the grain production, just had enough of this shit, and they basically bring capitalism back. They 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 sort of slowly start to introduce basically like so they they, they start to bring wages back into their uh, into the sort of labor brigades they've been working in, and then they turn these labor brigades into joint stock companies. And this is this is the this is the actual beginning of sort of the return like of China to capitalism. And how do they? So, I mean, there's a couple of things that are interesting for this to me. One of them is that, like, with the when the USSR was kind of in its its early stage, based on some longstanding like Marxist theories, there was a lot of distrust towards like rural people, towards farmers. Like you saw that 
a lot in Ukraine because they're not the proletariat, right? They're not like the 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 industrial working class, um, and they were seen as kind of you know inherently um, kind of more capitalistic in a lot of ways, and it kind of seems like that's what's happening here and that's like that's also what they're doing well Um, it's weird because so the 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 big sort of difference between like maoism and like the earlier sort of forms of marxism is that maoism is like i mean and and this 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 is how mao like becomes a leader of the communist party is that he's the guy who's like we're going to organize the peasants and so you know and yeah and they they have this whole thing about like the peasant worker alliance or whatever but like the people who actually put the communists in power are are the peasants they're they're you know until the great forward they're extremely popular there but that, you know, but they have this whole thing about how, like, they, they, they have this whole thing they need to do industrial development. Part of it's like, you know, that they fight the Korean War and like the, the, the Chinese soldiers you get sent to Korea, like, like they don't have shoes and they're, they're you know, and so yeah, they're like, not, they're not doing great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, like it's, they have like a pretty good army, but it's like, they, they don't have any supplies. And so there's this whole thing about we need to do industrial buildup. We need to do industrial buildup. And that, and the fact that there's, oh, there's also this huge concern in the CCP that like, they're going to get overthrown by urban workers. Which like I mean, literally does happen in 1968 when like the party gets ran out of uh, like gets ran out of Shanghai by like an uprising. There's all this stuff, and so they're they're basically trying to like like they they, they think the peasantry is like restive enough that they can extract grain from them and put it into the countryside. Or, I'm sorry, t- take the grain from the countryside and put it into the cities. And, yeah, yeah. The problem is that so they don't have enough. Okay, so if you, if you need to improve, want to improve agriculture, right? You you need to like increase the amount of grain you can produce, and the thing is the only okay. Yeah. So partially you're dealing with like lysenkism and all of this bunk science. But the other problem is that they don't have like modern industrial agricultural equipment, and so but the problem is in order to do that you need like an industrial base. But the thing is, in order to build the industrial base, you need more grain, and so they have this like trap they get caught in. And the way that they sort of get out of this is that the peasants start bringing capitalism back. And so in, in, in 1984, it's like a few, a few years after the, the peasants start forming like joint stock companies and they start bringing wages back. Deng Xiaoping is just like, okay, all of this stuff that you guys are doing, I'm, I'm going to put my seal of approval on it. I'm going to put out this directive. It's like, this is illegal. You should do more of it. And, you know, he, and th- th- this is like why Deng gets all sort of the credit for it because he just like puts his name on it. and was like, all these economic reforms are my idea. And yeah, I mean, and I assume there was like there was like a fight over this oh, at, at a pretty high level, right? Because yeah. they could, they, you could, you can't just say like, "Hey, we're gonna we're gonna add some capitalism back into the mix," and and the central party be like, "Okay," without like there was there was some shit that went down, yeah, right? Yeah, and I mean, the, the, you know, the thing the, the the thing about that's important, even about Deng Xiaoping, is that in the beginning of this, like, they don't want to go back to capitalism. They the, what they're trying to do is reintroduce the market as just like a way to sort of stabilize the economy. And yeah, which is something I think people mistake a lot. Like markets aren't necessarily capitalism, although that is, you know, what happens at the end of this process. Yeah. And, and you know, and, and there, there's I mean, there's a bunch of really intense theoretical debates over like socialist markets. And I mean, there, there's a very brief attempt yes. where like they're going to try the Yugoslavia thing where everyone has like democratic workers co-ops and they just like that, that doesn't happen. But, yeah. You know, yeah there, there's this whole debate about this. Doesn't really happen in Yugoslavia, you could argue. Yeah, <laughs> I mean, it worked okay for a bit, but <laughs> and we should we should note because not everyone's listened. We have a, two episodes on Lysenkoism. Um, that was this this Soviet 
theorist who believed that you could you like freeze seeds to make them more cold tolerant and stuff. And he had a bunch of wacky theories about how you could apply like kind of socialist attitudes towards people to plants and it would improve crop yields. And it didn't. And a lot yeah. of people starved <laughs> and they did it in Russia and they did it in China. And it was not not a great idea, um, broadly speaking. Yeah, it was it was not good. Um, now, one of the, the other very important thing about the, the, and something that genuinely did change in this period is that in 1984, that, that directive I was talking about, Deng Xiaoping lets for the first time state-owned firms like, you know, our friends over at the 3D or Dairy Company, like actually make profits by selling their goods. And so, you know, previously, like you're, you're working to a production target, you hit the production target and they give you stuff. But now if you have excess production, you can sell it. And this is, this is an enormous, I mean, this is, this is, an, this is, this, this hasn't, you haven't been able to do this in China since like, 1940 like like 1953 it, it, it just hasn't happened so this is this is the start of this whole thing where you know the state-owned companies start to be instead of like producing goods in order to produce goods they're producing goods in order to make money now our friends at three deer company during this period come under new girl boss management and under under this under this new girl boss <laughs> leadership <laughs> they 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 start Becoming the they become the first large scale powdered milk manufacturer in China, and this is important because powdered milk is how you make baby formula, and so you know they go to right. powdered milk and they start making baby formula. But this was not enough for the ambitious new leadership at Three Deers, in you know with, with with this new incentive structure that that has has been set up, where you have you have an incentive to produce as much as possible and cut costs, so you can make money. They start looking for ways to make production cheaper, and the solution they land on is outsourcing. <laughs> now, previously. Yeah, this, this is this is going to go great. We, we, I love I, <laughs> I, I, one of my favorite things is when because I'm thinking of, we'll at some point cover like Nestle's baby formula disaster too. But but oh, just yeah, we, you, yeah. the fact that they go right yeah they go right to outsourcing. I, I love I love when you have what are supposed to be radically different ideologies, but they start making similar decisions that that lead to similar problems. Like it's just. Yeah, ah, it's people. it's very fun. Yeah, there, yeah, we're going to see. There's there's a lot of stuff that goes on here. Um, so you know, yeah. and and this this is this is also like a huge break though with with previous sort of the way the socialist like agriculture works, where you know if you have a dairy farm, right, you have there, there's a state owned enterprise. They own the cows, they own the farms, they employ all the workers, and they like run the whole system from you know like farm distribution center. And three years yeah. looks at this in, in 1986, they, they, they start making chase and they look at this and they go like, this is expensive. We have to actually like run the farms and we have to pay for the cows. We have to pay wages. So instead of doing this, they go, what if we loan our cows to farmers in the countryside? And then, you know, they have to take oh, out Jesus yeah, Christ. Yeah. It gets better. They're sharecropping cows. Oh yeah, so they're sharecropping cows, <laughs> okay. right? And then you know, so the, to pay off the debt they incur by buying the cow, they you have, you have they have, they have to like give they 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 pay back the debt in milk, and then on top of that, they have to pay a yearly management fee in in order so that they can like continue to be like debt peons who sell milk to this company. Now, now the, the other great part of this is that they're not outsourcing to like actual farms; they're outsourcing to individual farmers, and so I mean these people have like two maybe three cows most of them have one cow which means that they're completely dependent on on three deer and their, their middlemen because they don't have enough resources to actually you know run their own operation they only have two cows and you know if you only have two cows you can never make enough money that you can like get a, even like a third or a fourth cow so you know 
they're, 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 they're stuck here working for this company and they are in effect the first modern Chinese gig workers. Oh, Jesus Christ. Yeah. So uh. <laughs> you can see where this is going now. Now this model, this, this gig working model also spreads to the American dairy industry where there's a bunch of farmers, quote unquote, who take out these like enormous loans to buy cows. And, you know, they also get caught in these debt traps. And, you know, the, the way this works is that by, by, by convincing these farmers that they're actually entrepreneurs, that they're small business owners and not workers, the corporations can exploit them even more than they were able to earlier by, you know, when, when they were just workers. And this is this is essentially just how capitalism works now. Um, the, the celebrated anthropologist Anna Singh wrote a very, very good article called Supply Chains and the Human Condition that talks about a lot of how the supply chain and outsourcing stuff works. And here, here's what she had to say about these these contract growers who are the uh, the the new the new like debt peon cow farmers in in the U.S. Watts, another academic, concludes: contract growers thus are not independent farmers at all. They are little more than property laborers, employees of a corporate producers who also dominate the chicken processing industry. Yet this little more than makes a big difference. It is not hard to understand. Not hard to imagine the cultural commitment of the grower to independent landholding and, quote, a business of his own. Contract farming flourishes in the imagined difference between an employee and an entrepreneur. The contract farmer works for $5.70 an hour, $15,000 a year, even though he is a white man because he owns his own business. Self-exploitation is essential to the cost-cutting power of the supply chain. Yeah, no, no, that there, sounds like some great communism to me. Yep, this <laughs> Just is great. like and, Marx you know, envisioned. <laughs> <laughs> yep. <laughs> yeah, and you know, this is this is the fun part about this. This is happening uh, both in the U.S. and in China at the same time. And you know, and there's a lot yeah. of stuff going on here, particularly with the the American side, right? I mean, you have you know, American agriculture is run by just undocumented, like, huge numbers of undocumented workers fleeing yes. sort of American atrocities in Latin America, and you know, yes. okay, yeah, yeah, and you know, their, their, their ability to sort of yeah, organize, you, you create yeah. situations of privation that make people desperate enough to labor incredibly, basically for free in conditions that are harmful to them, um, and they can't complain because they're not. Anyway, yes, I mean, here's one of the things that seems to be happening here, and this is a thing that I think people on the left get wrong a lot. Capitalism is an extremely efficient system for doing a specific set of things. Now, those specific set of things don't include keeping the world habitable, but it's very good at what it does, which yeah. is why people <laughs> keep cribbing from it. Like yeah. it's, its job is not to make the world habitable, but it's good at what its job is. It's very efficient at what its job at what its job is. Um, its job yeah. just has nothing to do with taking care of you. <laughs> yeah, and in fact, well, and it's, it's not only is it not of like it's not about taking care of you. I mean, this whole thing, yeah. you know, this, this is like this is a big part of what ICE is. Is it's this this basically institutions of mass violence in order to keep people's like wages down and you know and and what, what you see is interesting in the in the sort of the, the dairy industry is okay so so agriculture corporations like see this and are like okay how can we convince white people to, to take this amount of money and the answer they come up with is just like convince them that they're business owners and this this is a you know uh, the, 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 this is part of a larger trend and the the larger trend here is that corporations both in China and the US are essentially they're increasingly becoming middlemen and and there's a lot of different models of how this works um one example is the franchise model which McDonald's is the most famous example of this um the way that McDonald's works is that like you know they they don't, they don't make money from selling hamburgers like 93% of McDonald's stores are franchises 
not they're not they're not run by the corporation itself around they're they're you know mcdonald's owns the land that the franchise opens on and if you pay them half a million dollars yeah. they will lease it to you and you know give you the right to to run the mcdonald's and then they'll also you know take royalties from you and you know it, it's from just like extracting rent that mcdonald's actually makes money um but but you know mcdonald's is somewhat interesting because it's kind of a transition phase between the earlier like corporations make things and what we're seeing now which is you know, corporations don't make things at all. I mean, Nike's Nike's a really good example yeah. of this. Um, yeah. So, so this is this is Nike. The yeah, Nike located in my hometown of Portland, a company that has never done anything wrong. Famously, yes, yeah. I'm aware of Nike. Yeah, it's, um, it's great. I actually eat an, a pair of Nike shoes every single day. Uh, it's the only source of protein in my diet. That's very impressive. Do you do you, do you stew it? And I know that's the traditional yeah. Russian thing. Yeah, I watched that documentary where Werner Herzog eats his shoes, and I decided this is how I want to live my life. But leather shoes are for peasants, so I'm going to <laughs> go with the much healthier various Nike materials, which is uh, the soles of small children uh, in the global south. Um, it's delicious. Yeah, it, it's fun. And you know, the other thing, this is, you know, what Singh is talking has, has this thing about Nike. Um, she says, quote, Nike never produced athletic shoes. Company founders began as distributors of Japanese-made shoes. The additions that made for success were the invention of the Swoosh logo, advertising endorsements from well-known African-American athletes, and a transfer to cheaper Asian locations for contracting production. Nike's vice president for Asia Pacific once explained, quote, we don't know the first thing about manufacturing. We are marketers and designers, which is great. It's like they, they don't they don't they don't make shoes. They, they buy shoes from other people. And, <laughs> yeah, you know, this 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 is this is a sort of interesting development because, you know, so Nike Nike's clothes are made in these really, really small shops with small numbers of employees. And, you know, I mean, this this is this is the sweatshops from the Triangle Shirtwaist episode, except, you know, they've gone backwards to the thing that Triangle Shirtwaist was supposed to be replacing. Yeah, yeah, they've literally been like, the problem with Triangle Shirtwaist is that it was, that factory was too ethical. We got to go back <laughs> a little bit further. Yeah, and, and, and I, I think it's uh, worth- you love to see it. Yeah, like, I think, I think it's worth asking why this happens, because- you know, the, the consequence of going back to the system is that the garment industry loses all of the safety and wage gains they made in the 20th century in like two decades. And and, you know, and this is in large part due to the sort of contractor model. So, you know, and we, we should ask, so why, why do you actually want to use the contractor model? Um, we've talked a little bit, yeah, it cuts, it cuts costs and, you know, it turns workers and small business owners that like, and, you know, it make, makes them easier to sort of rob by convincing them that they're actually like business owners and not just sort of, you know, permanently entrapped debt peons. Now, another reason for this is that it makes union organizing extremely difficult because part of the workforce that, you know, would have been workers in like a triangle shirtwaist uh, setup are actually small business owners now. And because in the in the garment. Yeah, is, which is also kind of what triangle shirtwaist did with the yeah. um, the inside contractor system. Yeah. Okay, yeah. Except great. the interesting thing about this breaks is the inside contractor system doesn't work. Right. Like the, the contractors like side side with the workers a lot. No. Yeah, yeah, it, yeah. It, it fails. But but in, yes. in this system, like the, the small shop sort of system, it, it doesn't that doesn't happen at all. all the, the small shop people are, you know, they're they are actually convinced they're small business owners. And this this makes it impo- like almost impossible for, for the, the, the garment workers to demand higher wages because the, the people they're working for are these contractors, and these contractors are also extremely poor and they have like they have no margins. But you know, because the workers are contractors for a contractor, right? Like they don't they don't have a way to directly like demand wages or safety procedures from the company. And, you know, th- this isn't like this, this system 
is not efficient, right? Like, you know, it, it, it's, it's way, it's way more efficient to like make, make the stuff in big factories. And, you know, in order to do this, you have to have these enormous supply chains that are spanning multiple continents in order to move this stuff around. But, you know, it, that doesn't really matter because since the eighties, what you basically see is corporations going, okay, it is better to have enormously inefficient production and these like giant logistics lines than it is for a single union to exist and take any of their money or, or worse yet. And this, you know, this is a real threat in the sixties and seventies, which is what all this decentralization stuff is a response to you know, it it was a real possibility in the sixties and seventies that like the garment workers were going to seize the company and start running it themselves. And so you get this enormous effort to make sure that this never happens again. And, you know, well, yeah, I mean, if there's anything that's antithetical to the socialist experiment, it's unionization. Yeah. (laughs) Workers owning the means of production like capitalists. No, thank you. (laughs) Yeah. You know, this is, you know, this is the thing is part of why it's interesting that like three deers, three deer is doing all of this stuff that like we look at now, like honest things running 2010, right? There is three deers is doing this all in 1986. And this is, you know, we talked about this earlier, but like, again, the, the, the people inside the communist Chinese Communist Party, like, didn't want to go back to capitalism. Like, they really didn't like capitalism. And it just didn't matter. Like, within two years of them saying, okay, state-owned industries can, like, can make money now, right? Like, the, within two years, the state-owned industries reinvented debt peonage. And, you know, and there's, there's another interesting <laughs> aspect of this, which is that, okay, so, so Three Deers is not just a state-owned industry. They're also a co-op. Which means the like the, the workers of say, of 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 three deers own shares in the company, and you know you would think that the combination of this is a state owned industry in a country that is still technically communist, combined with a you know led by a woman, you, you would think all three of these things would like in some way make any of this better. But no, it turns out that uh, the the incentives run exactly the other way, and so you know if, so if, if you have the state the state owned firm is trying to cut costs because. You know, because they they only give a limited amount of money to the state. They're trying to cut costs, so so the outsourcing saves the money. And then the interesting thing about the co-op part is the co-op part feeds into this because you know if if you're a member of the co-op, right, the less members of the co-op like there are, the more your shares are worth. And so they have this incentive to make sure that as much of the work is being as possible is being done by contractors because the contractors aren't like members of the co-op. And, and yeah, yes. Yeah, so, so this leads. <laughs> Yeah, and this this they invented Uber. Yeah, they invented yeah. Uber in 1986, two years after they legalized making money. It's, it's incredible. Yeah, hell yeah. See, that's that's socialist innovation right there. <laughs> Fuck you, Silicon Valley. Oh god, it's, you know, and, and and because this. I is, mean, it's actually an old idea, but yeah, yeah. They, 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 they're they're one of they're one of the first people to like bring it back. Which is fairly incredible, and yeah. you know, because because this is just like a capitalist economy now, this pays off enormously, and you know, three years throughout the entire sort of the next 10, 15 years just massively expands. Um, they 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 do this massive series of mergers and acquisitions, and by the nineties, it is the largest dairy producer in China, and you know, and they they continue to expand. and you know, but by by this point, they they have real political power because they're they're you know. Their, their company is a significant part of like the local Chinese tax base. And so this, this gives them ends with the party. And this is part of what allows them to, in 2005, form this joint partnership with the New Zealand based Frontera Cooperative Group. Um, yeah, Frontera buys 43% of the shares and, you know, they, 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 they do this huge joint partnership thing. And this, this is a huge deal. Um, Frontera is the second largest dairy company in the world. They, they you know, they have 30% of the world's total dairy production. And, you know, they're the largest company in New Zealand. 
by a margin that's like, okay, they are so powerful in New Zealand that several of the cables from WikiLeaks suggest that the reason that New Zealand sent troops to Iraq was that the U.S. was threatening to cut off their, uh, their, their milk for oil deal with the Iraqi government when they knocked it off. Shit. What the fuck? What the fuck? <laughs> <laughs> See, but no war for milk is a terrible thing to put on a, a placard sign. Yeah. That's just not going to get you anywhere. That is incredible. I And I, I love it whenever we get New Zealand gets gets so much credit because their government isn't isn't just howlingly incompetent. Um, but they they do dumb shit, guys. Don't worry. Yeah. Don't worry. New Zealand's government does terrible things. It's fine. You know, and, and it's great because, again, th- th- this is a, you know, it's, it's, the, Fonterra is a group of cooperatives. And once yeah. again, the cooperatives are not only not like making anything better. They're like pushing New Zealand into war with like, like in, into an invasion of Iraq. It's, it's great. Yeah, baby. <laughs> Global capital go to war for fucking milk. You know who else will go to war? On behalf of a milk conglomerate. Jesus, who? All of the products that support this podcast. Fuck we yeah. ask one question of our sponsors, and it's, will you invade the global south in order to improve the profits of a milk manufacturer? And if they say no, or as is more common, what are you talking about? Are you having a stroke, Robert? Do we need to call someone? We hang up the phone. We don't take that goddamn money. That's the behind the bastards guarantee. Yeah. The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild minigames. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. 
It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart's Outspoken Network for a year, and what a year it has been. Every weekday, I navigate our rapidly changing world alongside our series of fabulous expert guests. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Woke not just to the latest headlines, but also to the collective power we all have. Woke to the need to build community with those around us. Woke to how to avoid burnout and woke to the ways we can all find joy in the madness. Make Woke AF Daily with Danielle Moody your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. And tune in to hear the ways I am working to stay grounded amidst it all. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. We're back. And Sophie just admitted that as a capitalist pig dog, she is wearing a Nike shirt. I am. Shamefully. I mean, it was, it was, a, it was a gift, but that's not an excuse. I still wear it. Mm-hmm. See, Sophie, that is something. <laughs> I know you're a monster. You're a monster. Unlike me, who is just surrounded by products of the international arms industry, which is completely non-problematic yeah. and has never been involved in anything. Unethical. I'm simply just, that's rep- what everyone says about rep- the global arms trade. LeBron. You Ethics. Got to represent LeBron mm-hmm. James. Mm-hmm. And I'm representing a lot of unsettling <laughs> companies. Okay, let's uh, let's get back to let's get back to the show, Chris. We're talking about milk. Yeah. So, so we're, which is also a thing you can buy and support the global arms trade. Apparently, it's great. It's great. No matter what you buy, all the money goes to the arms trade. You can't. You can't not feed money back into the global it's arms great. trade. That's capitalism, baby. It all winds up making guns somehow. Also, the the fun part uh, of this is that uh, Fonterra is going to come out looking like the better party in this deal at the end of this, which is which is an is, is, this is this is a. You can tell the story is going well when the people who are slightly more responsible are the people who sent troops to Iraq. It's great. Now, mm-hmm. Fonterra partners with Three Deers under the assumption that, you know, China's largest dairy company will be selling products that are, you know, of quality and thus wouldn't get into, like, trouble. But, you know, even... Yeah, you're not gonna... Yeah, yeah, yeah they're the largest dairy company in China. Like, what, what, what could possibly be going wrong? But, you know, e- even before 2005, there were signs that Fonterra should have been concerned. Now, since the start of the reform period in the 1980s and sort of accelerating through a transition to capitalism in the 90s, China has had a huge food safety problem, particularly in in the dairy industry. Uh, And and while obviously there's a lot of structural issues involved in this, uh, in the dairy industry, a lot of this is is directly, (laughs) this this is directly the fault of of three deers model of contract farming. 
Now, as, as we oh no, yeah, it's, it's crazy. <laughs> Making the Uber of massive scale food production didn't didn't make things as safe as Uber, <laughs> Uber. the famously safe ride app. <laughs> the the Uber of baby formula surprisingly are not yeah. the good guys here. Now, mm-hmm. as a result of the sort of the miniature agriculture revolution that that three deers kicks off in the 80s and, and, and 90s, most dairy farming, I mean, and this this is true to this day in the year 2021, is done by those individual farmers with like one to three cows. And, you know, the, this whole system is is designed so that like no one can no one can build up enough capital to get out or to, 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 do, to do any kind of like productivity improvements on themselves, because if they had that much money, they could go like start their own company and they wouldn't have to, you know, work for three years. And... The, the other thing about the contract model is it means that no one is investing, you know, because these cows are being are owned and maintained by these farmers. Yeah. No one's investing in any sort of technological improvements. And, you know, because all the, the farmers are, you know, at best you're broke and at worst you're hopelessly in debt. They don't have money to buy good land. They're, they're using essentially the land left over from the from the old uh, like land reform allotments. And this means that, you know, this is this is some of the worst agricultural land in China that they're raising these cows on. I mean, okay, so it's the worst agricultural land that you can, can that you can raise a cow on and it's not literally desert or like the top yeah. of a mountain. And so, you know, this means that the, the cows aren't very healthy and the, the milk they produce is is pretty low quality. Now, higher quality yeah. milk with more, more protein in it sells for more money because, you know, you can use it to make baby formula. And this means that there's an enormous incentive for farmers, middlemen, and the dairy companies to fake the protein content of their milk to make it look higher than it actually is. How do you, I mean, is it just like they're bribing the people whose job it is to check? Or is there some like, are they like pro it pouring whey protein into the milk? Yeah, so. Like, how does that actually work? So so the easiest way to do this, well, I mean, so they, they are bribing people, but you can't, you have to bribe yeah. an enormous number of people in order to do this. So the easiest way to do it is by putting additives into the milk that make, that make the milk look like it has more protein when on on the sort of tests that companies use to, to like figure out how much like milk how, how much protein is in the milk, and you know th- this this is where the middlemen come in, and you know so so the middlemen are people who they 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 buy the milk from the farmers and and sell it to the dairy companies. Now you, you might be wondering, you know, again the companies sold them these cows, right? So why would why are the companies like not just buying the milk from the farmers directly? And the answer for that, there's there's three reasons. Uh, the, the first is that the dairy companies, you know, it, it, running through these middlemen means they don't have to spend the money running their own logistics network to, you know, buy and then move supplies of milk around. Um, the second reason is to put a buffer in between sort of the dairy companies and the contract farmers and st- in case the farmers get any ideas about, you know, banding together so they don't have to live in desperate poverty. Yeah. And the third reason you use middlemen is to do crime. Hell yeah. Now we're talking. Yeah. And, and you know, this. Yeah, because if you get someone else to do a crime, then you then you're you're in the clear. That's the way crime works. Yeah. It, well, this, this is literally true. So, you know, say, for example, you are Nestle. Yeah. And the cocoa that you use for your chocolate is produced by child slave labor yeah. and, you know, the Ivory Coast of Burkina Faso. You know, it, it, we saw okay, this. Now, you say child slave labor like it's a bad thing, Christopher. I mean, without child slave labor, we wouldn't have, I don't know, the pyramids or England. I, I'm pretty I'm pretty sure they didn't use child slaves. Amazingly, they had slavery, but I'm pretty sure they didn't use child slaves to build the pyramids. I mean, which is incredible. A lot of them were probably 17, right? <laughs> yeah. But, you know, I. I I, I, I do want to point out it's like, yeah, so like every every computer, like every electronic device that's like made now has coal tar in it, 
which is this thing that's almost yes, entirely sure yeah my yes. mind by child slave labor and democratic public accountability. it's like we're not even making pyramids with it like we're making no. like headphones that break after four minutes it's like yeah uh, yeah we're making iphones that are designed to stop working after two years yeah um you know yeah no i mean yeah yeah so okay yeah. 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 And, you know, and we, we saw this recently with their, 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 like, so people who'd been enslaved by, 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 by the contract growers, uh, you know, tried to sue Nestle in court. But, you know, because, because these are, because Nestle's buying from middlemen and not buying, and not like owning the slaves directly, they, they, you know, in court, they were just like, ah, it wasn't us. It was our suppliers. Nothing we can do about it. Yeah. And, and, you know, and the other thing, the, the great thing about American contract law, it is literally written into law, right? It's like there, there's great examples in California, but you know it, it's written into law, American corporate law, that if you are a contractor, right, for a company, and you know the the, the deals you sign that involves you becoming a contractor makes it so that if you like do slavery, uh, you have to claim in court that it was you and not the company above you. Which wow. is yeah, this is it's great. It's, oh, that's rad. Yeah, yeah, and God, you know, that's fun. Yeah, you love to see it. Yeah, okay. it's it's great, and, and you know, and because Nestle's production is set up exactly the same way as Three Deers is, like the the people who Nestle enslaved lost a Supreme Court case when I tried to sue them because they couldn't prove that Nestle directly ordered the slavery, and then you know, because, and because it didn't happen in the U.S. Uh, once, once they couldn't prove that, once that it didn't happen in the U.S., so they didn't have any standing to sue in American courts. So yeah, this is yeah. So there's this whole legal framework that that's set up, and this this happens everywhere to 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 use these contractors to do crime. And in, in the Chinese case of three dealers, you get exactly the same thing. You know, you have the middlemen and contractors who are the people who are doping this milk. And you know, by doping, it's like they're 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 putting additives into the milk to to fake the test to fake the amount of the, the protein count. And you know, and by by getting the middlemen to do it, you have plausible deniability. And you know, if things like go wrong, you can just blame the farmers. No, no, I will say this. So some farmers are desperate enough to put additives into their milk themselves. Um, but, it, you know, and, and the farmers in the media are the people who get blamed for this. But, it, you know, a lot of them, and even the people who are doing it, like, they don't know what they're, like, putting into the milk. So they just assume that it's, like, fine. But, you know, this, 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 this turns into a huge problem because, you know, the combination of sort of the, the incredible greed of these large and small business owners and the desperation of these farmers leads to a series of really bad milk scandals. Um, the, 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 one of the more famous instances and like worst instance, I think, um, was, was the fake milk scandal in 2004, where a bunch of just fake baby powder was made with regular milk and not, you know, like high protein milk was sold to a bunch of extremely yeah. poor rural farmers. And the result of this is that 50 babies die from malnutrition because, you know, the milk didn't give the nutrients that they needed. And so they just, they starved. Right. And yeah, that's what babies do when you don't yeah. feed yeah. them. Yeah. Yeah. And this, you know, so this 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 pisses off everyone because here's a bunch of dead babies who starve to death. And there's a huge crackdown and a bunch of people including party officials get arrested. And you know, the, the result of this is th- there's a whole series of these very high profile attempts by the party to get the problem of food safety and fake food and fake drugs under control. And this culminates in the CCP executing the head of their Food and Drug Administration for taking bribes from a pharmaceutical company to promote their products. Like they they kill a cabinet level official, and it doesn't do anything because the problem isn't about sort of isn't about just sort of individual corruption. It's structural, and you know, and this is just, this is sort of a structural problem with capitalism. Like the, the cheapest and easiest way to make money is just to scam people, 
and you know yeah 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 it, yeah it's always the best way to make money yeah, yeah. We, we we have seen this 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 is one of the running themes of behind the bastards is get rich scam people and you know cutting corners and even just like making fake stuff doesn't work makes you an incredible amount of money and you know the, the longer you can keep the scam going the better off you are and you know this is this is the way the incentive structure works everywhere the only reason that food safety is as good as it is in like europe is that you know, food safety was a key demand of sort of the workers who have been in progressive reformers who were able to get these food safety regulations yes. put in place. But, you know, and I can't emphasize this enough. And don't worry, folks, they're dismantling it. They're dismant. Don't worry. They'll get rid of those food safety regulations in Europe, here, everywhere. Don't worry, people. Yeah, like, well, the, 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 soon you will be free to eat poison. Oh, don't worry. Europeans also eat poison. Um, the, the, even the controls they put in place like don't work all that well. So, for example, like in, in France, the, there's this massive scandal in the 80s and 90s where it's revealed the Socialist Party had been sending blood drawn from prisoners with HIV and hepatitis and selling it to Bayer Pharmaceuticals so that Bayer could make a drug for hemophiliacs Fuck with yeah. it. <laughs> so, oh, you love to see it. God yeah. damn, that's good. That's that's the that's the that's what people come to behind the bastards for. Is a France the French Socialist Party selling <laughs> HIV tainted blood to big pharma yeah, and for then, prisoners? And then and then I think uh, there, there, there's, 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 this has like a reverberating scandal because the British government like knows that it's that this drug is poisoned and gives it to people anyways. It's, yeah, it's of great. course. Yeah, and you know, and this this is the sort of last part of the incentive structure at play with with unsafe food and drugs, which is state officials trying to make money for themselves and their political clients. And, you know, again, this is the cause of food safety issues in all capitalist countries. Um, but China in particular has, you know, it has a more intense version of this because there's this really, really fierce competition between sort of different local governments over GDP growth rates. Because, you know, if you're a Chinese official, right, like the, the way you move up in the party is by how you're sort of your local or provincial, you know, you're, you're a cadre, right? You're in charge of a city, you're in charge of the town. The way the way you're evaluated and, and how you move up in the party is is mostly based on on how high your GDP rate is. Now, this right. means that you know if 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 you think very socialist, yeah, it's it's great. It's <laughs> it's it's incredible. They yeah. it's also it's also funny because like one of the big things in across the whole sort of like really eighties and nineties and it's still going on today was like one of the big sort of socialist projects is about how GDP is like a completely bullshit metric of. Like economic growth in China's like, no, no, no. Our cadre evaluations are all GDP now. And and, and this means that, yeah. you know, the cadres will sign off on just literally anything that, that they think will just like cause any growth whatsoever. So luckily in the US, we do not have the problem of, of uh, bribery because uh, giving money to politicians in exchange for political favors is in fact legal and thus definitionally not bribery. But unfortunately for corporations in China... Great. Okay, rad. Yeah. Yeah, unfortunately for, for corporations in China, uh, China is an absolute one-party capitalist dictatorship, which means you have to bribe politicians the old-fashioned way. Like socialism intended. Robert, okay. Do you know who won't bribe uh, Chinese regulators in order to poison their milk? I mean, definitely not our sponsors, because they, <laughs> they are actively bribing Chinese regulators as we speak. <laughs> regulators of all nations, you know, we, we we only go with the wokest corporations, so they'll bribe Chinese regulators, they'll bribe Zimbabwean regulators, they'll bribe regulators from uh, uh, Latin America, they'll bribe regulators from anywhere in the world. That's the behind the bastards guarantee. Everyone's getting bribed. Here's Here's ads. 
The evidence keeps pouring in. At this point, the facts are undeniable. It's an open and shut case. Monopoly Go is the most fun you can have in a mobile game. Millions of people pass Go every day because this game is always bringing something new to the table. Countless crazy tournaments you can join with your friends as partners or teams. Constantly changing challenges like money sprees or treasure hunts that keep it fresh with new wild mini-games. Timed events offering bonuses like massive multipliers or rent frenzies to help you get huge rewards. And there's so many rewards to discover. Rare stickers you can trade with friends to complete albums, delightful emojis to taunt people with when you raid their riches, unique playing pieces, and so much more. The verdict is in with Monopoly Go. There's something new to discover every time you play. So don't miss out. Go download it now for free on the App Store and Google Play. Bean Dad. The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus, where every week I take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who were they? What made them so notorious? Why did the internet choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? I'll be talking to internet historians, experts, and yes, the main characters themselves to get a fuller picture. Because I think that even outside individual experiences, a character of the day tells us something about how the internet worked at that time and how the attention economy developed into the freaky three-headed dragon it is today. Together, we probably won't be able to properly log out, but we can take a walk down scary internet memory lane and see one day a little more clearly. Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What up? I am Dramos, host of the Life as a Gringo podcast. Now, this is a show for the Nosabo kids, the, the 200 percenters. Here we celebrate your otherness and embrace living in the gray area. If you ever felt like you were always too much this while also never being enough that, this is the podcast for you. Every Tuesday, I'll be bringing you conversations around personal growth 
issues affecting the Latin community, and much more via my own personal stories, along with interviews with inspiring thought leaders from our community. Then, every Thursday, I'll be tackling trending stories and current events from our community that you need to know. So much of what makes our community so beautiful is our diversity, yet too often those of us who don't fit into this dumb, stereotypical box of whatever it means to be Latino are left without a voice or just forgotten about. On this show, I celebrate the uniqueness of our culture and invite you to walk in your authenticity. Listen to Life as a Gringo as a part of the Michael Tura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Ah, oh, Chris, you know, it did, it, did, it did occur to me that, you know, that, that whole system you just kind of set up whereby these, these Chinese farmers are essentially... Uh, recreating the gig economy in order to maximize the pro- their profits uh, at the expense of both the people receiving the milk and the people uh, who 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 labor for them, but but aren't you know full full partners in the endeavor. Mm-hmm. Um, we're kind of doing that with podcasting. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, that's it's good. I love I love I love uh, doing things that succeed for everybody. So Chris, uh, please please continue your <laughs> podcast share. <problem. laughs> <laughs> now you know so so the, the other thing about china is that you know so you can bribe politicians right but you can also you, you can also just literally bribe the regulators directly and you know okay so so chinese regulation um you know so so when chinese regulators are not literally representatives from the corporation they're supposed to be regulating uh you know you get corruption like you know we, we saw you know, like the ccp executed the dude who was their head of, of the, the state food and drug administration the corruption goes from the local level all the way to the top and and corruption among regulators is so bad that when a chinese state journalist like took maternity leave and wound up making a, a, a documentary in 2015 about air pollution after her baby uh, developed a tumor while in the womb because the air quality was so bad she she like looked at the U.S. as a bottle of a country with a functioning regulatory apparatus, and and you know again this is this is interesting because this isn't sort of just like partisan hack criticism right like this is this this is the Chinese state uh, uh, like this is the Chinese state journalist and you know and the CCP thinks that the issues that she's bringing up like are valid enough that like and it's not much she's called under the dome and they think the issues are valid enough that they don't ban it this is you know this is a documentary that's very critical of the party and they don't ban it for the first week that it's released and you know th- this is this is one of the ways the CCP sort of like tacitly allows criticism to be made because you know okay so it's CCP you can't actually just have free criticism there right but you know they were like eh okay we'll we'll, we'll ban it eventually but we'll let people see it first and the thing they were like, okay, we need to let people see is Chinese regulatory corruption is so bad it makes people long for the 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 American the, the amazing safety system of the U.S. Oh boy, yeah, it's 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 bad. Yeah, yeah. Now, by two thousand seven, Chinese authorities are you know they're not unaware of the practice of putting additives into milk, and this kicks off this kind of regulatory cold war between additives manufacturers and the regulators who like actually don't like care about not poisoning children. And, you know, so the regulators change their techniques to, to detect, like, the chemicals that people are using, and people change the chemicals, and there's this, there's this whole sort of cold war. And it starts to get worse in the late 2000s as the CCP imposes price controls on baby formula as an anti-poverty measure. Now, this is not, like, a bad thing inherently, like, in principle, but, you know, if you're dealing with, like, a state-owned firm that's designed to actually produce goods for people and not designed to make money, this can actually work. Um, but, you know, the price controls had these weird unintended consequences when applied to, you know, 
the three deer, the <laughs> three deer, the, the 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 contract worker co-op. Yeah, and you know, so so three deers and the other the other milk companies just sort of pass on the added costs and the price controls down to the middlemen, and the middlemen are like, okay, well, we'll pass the price down to the farmers. Now, th- this escalates the regulatory cold war because the price for like regular milk just implodes. Um, and people start adding these incredibly dangerous chemicals, like more dangerous than what they had already been using, to the milk uh, to, 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 to fake these tests. And the most notable one of this is melamine. Now, melamine is a chemical that is normally used to make plastics. Um, it, it's common in, you know... So that sounds like something babies need a lot of. Yeah, yeah. Because babies are basically mostly plastic. Yeah, and it's completely healthy. It's like, that's it's why it's why you let them eat dishes or when, when the baby starts chomping on a countertop, it's like, we got to get the melamine. You got you to let them eat this countertop. They got to get that melamine. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. It, that's why I feed babies nothing but pure plastic. What I, I filter out, I get one of those facial scrubbers with the little microbeads and I filter out those microbeads and I just funnel it right into the baby's mouth and that, that keeps them healthy. It's yeah. toxic though, like... Yeah, like, yeah, like yeah, but babies are mostly poisoned by weight, mm. right? Mm. Yeah. Mm. I like babies. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, it, oh boy. So, uh, unfortunately, for people who like babies, uh, yeah. melamine. So, if you ingest <laughs> it, it causes you to develop kidney stones. Oh Jesus! Yeah, and a so, baby. So babies are getting kidney stones. Oh, it's so yeah. mean. I hate that. Yeah, so yeah. Much. So. You know, but but on the other hand, you know, it, it, it's it's really unless you're specifically looking for it, it's extremely hard to detect because it, basically what it does it so the the, pro, the 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 like more refined protein tests are like testing for level of nitrogen in it because level of nitrogen in the thing tells you how much protein there is, and this thing like boosts the level of nitrogen, and so you know when people start getting desperate, they're like, ah, screw it, we'll put, we'll put plastic into this, we'll put this chemical, and you know. This stuff starts getting put in milk all across China in order to pass off like shitty milk as like high quality baby formula milk. But it's really just causing baby baby Rad. baby kidney stones. Yeah, yeah. That's dark. I don't like that at all. Yeah, it, it's it's, oh, it's gonna Jesus. get worse. I mean, the good news <laughs> is that when you get kidney stones, doctors tend to advise like beer is often advice because it helps you pass them. So really, we just need to start getting those babies beer and that'll the problem solves this. just mix beer in with the milk do a milk beer bong for the babies and <laughs> then the babies get nutrition and they pass the kidney stones and everyone's happy right no i can't think of a problem with that let's continue <laughs> no oh god so so in 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 november 2007 a man named wong buys some three-year baby formula for his young daughter now he holds on to this uh to the formula until early 2008 but when he starts using it, he quickly realizes there's something wrong with his daughter. Uh, it, it becomes incredibly painful for her to go to the bathroom, and her urine has these weird particles in it. And eventually, he figures out the thing that's causing it is the powdered milk. So, you know, he he, he makes what's, you know, the, the normal assumption if you buy something in China and it makes you sick is that it's fake. Yeah. So, he calls Three Deer's service hotline to confirm that yeah. the milk is fake. And, you know, so so some time goes by. And in late February, they, they're, they're sort of like doing bureaucratic stuff. Um, in late February, he sends them some of the packages that he has left. And they confirm, surprisingly, the packages are not fake. They're real. And they tell Wong to, to send the rest of, of the packages, like, to the company. Right. Now, Wong yeah. should have been one of the big heroes of this story because he tells him to fuck off. Because he's like, okay, I want an actual yeah. examination of like what's making my what made my baby like sick, and so so he goes to his local consumer association, demand one. Uh, the problem is that the the inspection 
for to, to to figure out what's wrong with his milk costs a third of the average salary of, of a Chinese worker, and three years refuses to pay for it. So he spends the entire month. He, I mean, he can't. Like he literally doesn't have the money for it. So he spends the entire month, two thousand eight, trying to fight his way through this just absolute bureaucratic nightmare, trying to figure out what's happening to his daughter, and it comes to nothing. Um, now. Wong is interesting. He, so he actually posts about this um, online, and it very, the thread very quickly gets locked. But he's he becomes the first documented case of poisoning from three years powdered milk. Now, while Wong is fighting this case, there is a massive earthquake in China that kills almost ninety thousand people. Jesus fucking Christ! Yeah, wow. and and he quickly realizes that three deers is sending the survivors free baby formula. And oh, at this yeah. point, uh, he, you know, he goes because nothing goes with your family being wiped out by a natural disaster like kidney stones. Yeah, yeah, it's great. And, you know, so, so he goes up the chain of command to try to stop it and he gets nowhere and his case gets completely ignored. Now, yeah. so th- this is all this is happening in in something in March. Now, in June, um, Chinese doctors start to see something they've never seen before. There's thousands of these babies, or almost all of them are less than a year old, who yeah. are, their bodies are completely swollen, they can't urinate, and they, they, they quickly realize when, when they start doing surgeries that they have kidney stones. And the doctor, this, you know, th- this is a really weird thing. Like, babies do not get kidney stones. <laughs> like, this, this just doesn't, yeah, yeah no, this, this does not happen. Be, yeah. So, you know, the, the doctors begin to suspect something's going wrong with powdered milk, and they try to go to the press. Now, now, a few Chinese journalists have been hearing basically the same story. And, you know, when, when doctors, like a few doctors start showing up and confirming that, you know, there's these babies in, in, in the hospital with kidney stones, um, some journalists try to publish the story. But the CCP's propaganda department, and, and yes, it is literally called the propaganda department because, yeah, I mean, oh boy. Yeah, because I guess when it started, that was still a time when people used, like, there was a period of time where the, the term propaganda was often used openly and not as a negative. Yeah. Thing, you know? That, that, well, and also, like, when it started, it was like, a, like you know, this it starts in, like, 1920. Like, this starts before the CCP is a state. So, yeah. you know, I mean, the, the propaganda department is just, like, a yeah. bunch of people passing out pamphlets. And now it's the state censorship yeah. agency. <laughs> now, yeah, and so and the, the, the reason they kill this story in large part is because of the 2008 Beijing Olympics. Now, I don't know how many other people remember the 2008 Olympics, but that was the first Olympics I ever watched. And it was just an enormous, just this huge deal for the Chinese government. Yeah. Yeah. And a lot of this is, so China's and only it freaked been, out a in, bunch in, of, I mean, like a lot of, a lot of American conservatives got real, real racist and scared yeah. about China because all the people drumming and stuff. Yeah. 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 And, you know, it, yeah, it turns into this whole media debacle and, you know, it, it, Part, part of what's happening, so China's only been in the World Trade Organization for like seven years, right? And th- that was their sort of acceptance back into like the liberal uh-huh. community of states or whatever after Tiananmen, which, you know, this is sort of, you know, this is one of the other weird things about history. So China was actually like pretty popular in the US, like through most of the 80s because they've been in, like an American ally in the Cold War. And, you know, this is why I, I think it's, uh, yeah, like I'm pretty sure in Red Dawn, it's like the two countries that are left are China and the US who are like fighting the Soviets. But, you know, after Tiananmen, like all of that sort of goodwill like implodes. And this, be- and, you know, and this means that like like the 2008 Olympics becomes like all the journalists call it China's coming out party. It's this huge international politics, geopolitical event. And I, and I cannot emphasize this enough. International politics is just an enormous dick waving contest that kills people for no reason. <laughs> my, my favorite example of this, and just to make it clear that China is not the only country that kills people for just bullshit international prestige points. Uh 
So my, my favorite example, it, it's the the sure. what, what happens right before the partial nuclear test ban in nineteen in treaty in nineteen sixty three. So you know, so it, but by the sixty three, everyone's has realized that testing nukes above ground is bad because you're radiating everyone. So you know, they, they sign a treaty. It's like don't do this. And then the day before the treaty goes into effect, both the U.S. and the USSR spend an entire day dropping hundreds of nukes. Just for no reason. It's just like they do this giant dick waving contest just to prove that they're like, oh, hey, look, look at how many nukes we can drop. And this kills an enormous number of people. But, you know, it kills them slowly with cancer and it's sort of hard to trace. So nobody really talks about the fact that like like thousands upon thousands of people died from just the, the U.S. and the USSR just like having this dick waving contest over who has the most nukes. So, you know, and China's version of this is they're they're absolutely determined that everything goes perfectly and there's no PR hiccups. And so, you know, I mean, they they go like, okay, so they 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 use so much steel building the facilities that there's a global steel shortage for four years afterwards. Like they they go nuts, like they shut down factories, they bring in like 120,000 migrant workers who they're paying $130 a month because socialism. Um, Yeah, and, and they even... Uh, they they even they they have this thing. Uh, I think people might remember this. So they have these IBM supercomputers, right? That they're using to to target clouds with anti aircraft guns. And so they shoot these anti aircraft guns at the clouds to make it rain, so that it wouldn't rain all, like over the event itself. You know, it's, I mean, this is <laughs> yeah, like like they, they they are shooting they are shooting guns at clouds like in, in order to make sure it doesn't rain. Like this is this is the level of sort of PR op you're you're dealing with here, and so. You know, from from the start of the games on August eighth until the Olympics finish on the twenty fourth, there is literally no way the CCP is going to let a story about a food safety crisis spread to the Western press. Now, unfortunately for the CCP, what they have on their hands is a massive food safety crisis. Now, four months after the first case is reported, Three Deers begins to run tests on their own supply, and they realize that basically their entire supply of, of baby formula is contam- contaminated with melamine. Now, on August second, they do the tests come back on August first. On August second. Uh, Three Deers has this frantic meeting with with Fonterra, which is the yeah their, their international affiliate, and Fonterra is like, okay, we need to do an immediate mass recall of all milk products because you know we don't we don't, we don't know exactly what's spike with melamine, and Three Deers is like, no, just absolutely not under the rationale that you know they don't want to have a scandal like six days before the start of the Olympics, and so they advocate for this very quiet limited recall. And, you know, they have this massive fight. There's all this weird corporate maneuvering. But, you know, three deers is being backed by the CCP. So, you know, they went out and they immediately set out to cover up the story of, you know, the fact that they're poisoning all these kids until the Olympics are over. And right. they, yeah, so they, they start like, they start planting positive stories in, in local newspapers and TV stations. Like they have, they have one of their PR people pretend to be a journalist and write a piece about them and then get it published like in the like get get it published in a newspaper and you know and they also I'm glad that stuff happens there too. I was feeling bad about America for a while, but now I realize we're just part of a beautiful global yeah. community of PR flacks pretending to be journalists in order to sell death. Yeah, it's great. Great. That is yeah. that is like when celebrities call the paparazzi on themselves to get a good photo. Yeah. Ew. The the, the other thing <laughs> they did and, and this is something well, okay, it, it wouldn't surprise me if Google does this, but I've never heard of them doing it. But 3 Deers buys off China's largest search engine, who, so, so, uh, they, they, the, the search engine has a feature where if you're a company, you're like, you're in the party, you can like, you can pay them money to manipulate the results. And so they, they, they pay this money and the search engine ensures that like, if you search for melamine or sick babies, it won't get linked back to Frontera. And this, this sort of media blackout works. 
Um, Three Deers and Fonterra say nothing to the public until the Olympics are nearly over. Um, on August 22nd, it's like the, this two days before the close of the Games, and 20 days after they learned about this, Fonterra finally reports the contamination to the New Zealand consulate. And then the New Zealand consulate continues to sit on it until after the Games are over because they don't want to damage relations with China. And it's not until September 8th that Helen Clark, the Prime Minister of New Zealand, formally and openly reports the contamination of the Chinese government. Now, I'm, 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 I'm emphasizing the date so much because every single day that they delay means another day where thousands of babies are drinking poison and are permanently damaging their kidneys, trying to piss out kidney stones. And the results of the delay, again, this is, this is uh, the, 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 the first case is reported in February. They like the, the, the Chinese government finally reacts in September. Mm-hmm. And the result of this is that 300,000 babies get sick. 50,000 are hospitalized and six children die. And I, I, I want to read this quote from, from the South China Morning Post so you can get a sense of this, the effect that this had. Holding her 10-month-old son in her arms at Beijing's Children's Hospital, Zhao Shuping cries as she tells how angry and shocked she is to learn that the milk powder her son has been drinking could kill him. I couldn't fall asleep last night, she says. I feel so bad for having fed my baby toxic milk powder since the day he was born. Living on the mainland, we sort of know that our food is always contaminated. But doing this to a vulnerable baby, the greedy businessmen are shameless. Yeah, it's it, people. Yeah, it's it's yep. people are incredibly pissed off. And, you know, the, the, the moment that the cat's out of the bag, the CCP starts, you know, they bring all their guns to bear in the crisis and they're, you know, then their investigations quickly discover that. It's not just three deers. 22 other milk companies have melamine in, in their milk. And, you know, be, between three deers and the 22 other companies, that is almost the entirety of China's dairy industry. And, you know, I, I, that represents by any reasonable standard a systemic crisis. Now, CCP's reaction to this was to execute two dairy farmers and one manufacturer of melamine powder and put nine more people, including the, the now peak girl boss head of three deers, in prison. And they also, they fired a lot of the local cadre well, okay. that had been involved in the cover up and they, like they, they fine the companies a little bit. And yeah, yeah so, so they, they, they pay the kids who get kidney I mean, stones like $290. And then if you get more sick than that, you get $4,000. Well, and if you die, they'll give you $29,000, which. Well, hey, that's a pretty, I mean, shit. Yeah, but the thing is. It's, who wouldn't want to die for that kind of yeah, money? Yeah, it's. it's you know, I, I've heard of worse payouts than that, but, you know, the, the, the problem is that, like, nothing fundamentally changes about, like, the structure of the dairy market. And people get extremely pissed about this because, you know, this is a scandal that affects almost the entire Chinese dairy industry and 12 total people get, get prosecuted for it. And so, you know, the prevailing wisdom in China becomes that, like, the CCP found a few convenient fall guys and are just, you know, trying to sweep everything else under the rug. Wow. Yeah, it, it's That's- bad. That's depressing, honestly. Yeah. yeah. It, you know, it, the, the result of this is that... So th- I mean, some people wound up in prison. Yeah, and the CCP passes a bunch of food safety laws. But, okay. you know, this doesn't help. Like, it doesn't solve the problem. And so, you know, it, like, the, the trust in the Chinese dairy market just implodes. And, I mean, people to this day still do not trust Chinese milk products. Like in China, from, you know, partially from the memory of, of the 300,000 babies with kidney stones, and partially because this stuff keeps happening. I mean, there hasn't been anything worse than the melamine crisis, like, thank God, since then. But, you know, like last year, there, there was another fake milk scandal, and five kids got rickets from malnutrition. And so, you know, people, people are extremely skeptical of Chinese milk brands. 
Now, the, the one exception... Yeah, that, that yeah, I would be too. Yeah, yeah, it makes sense, right? There's, there's one interesting exception to this. And, you know, the exception is there's, there's, there was one, like, Chinese firm that emerged from the Melamine scandal uh, unscathed. And the way the reason they pulled this off, or able to pull this off, is because they don't use contract workers. And so that means they actually, like, run their farms. And, you know, with no middlemen and without contract farmers, you get, like, much better, like, quality, like, quality control. You get better milk. And, you know, if, if you're going to run a farm like that, it's way harder to do crime. But the problem is that this milk is more expensive. And, and that leads us to the final and maybe the most devastating part about the whole food safety problem. It affects the absolute poorest people in Chinese society. Like, if you're rich, you don't have to eat this shit. You can you can buy more expensive food from companies who won't try to scam you. Yeah, yeah, you know. And I mean, like, like there there's people go to like really elaborate efforts to do this. Like, I so some of my family like works in the airline industry, and they talk about how people will like so pilots who are like f- like flying a planes back from China to the U.S. will like go to American grocery stores and buy a bunch of flour. And stuff so they can bring it back because they know that the American, or at least they're well, okay, they, because the American food safety standards are better. And so, you know, like, yeah, so they bring it back for their families. But, you know, migrant workers and rural villagers who come from the same place are all forced to just roll the dice every time they buy food because they don't make enough money to buy food they know is real. And and I want to close this by talking a bit about like just how bad this problem is and how many how many people it affects. So China has 290 million migrant workers. This is like, this is, you know, if, if, if you took the migrant worker population of China out and made them a separate country, it'd be the fourth largest country on earth. Um, and China's entire economic system is based on making sure that this, this migrant worker population, which is like 80% of the population of the total population of the US and 60% of the industrial workforce, it's, it's based on making sure that these people don't get insurance that, you know, the, the insurance that non-migrant workers get. And the results of this, and, you know, this one was not familiar to Americans, uh, people just don't go to the doctor unless they're literally dying. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, we, we know what that's like. And, yep. you know, yeah, except, you know, but but it, it's, it's even worse here because the, the people who can't afford to buy food that they know isn't fake are the people who can't afford to go to the doctor. And, and in rural areas, it's even worse because the local clinics, they don't even have, they don't have doctors, they don't even have nurses. Because, you know, the Chinese healthcare system is enormously overstrained. And, you know, yeah. and this, this is how you get real children dying of malnutrition from fake milk. You know, if, if, you know, if, if, if the signs had been caught early enough or like if they were in medical care, then these people wouldn't have died. But, you know, their parents don't have access to medical care. And so they don't know what's wrong until it's too late and the baby starved to death. And yeah, that, 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 that's, that's where we're going to leave it today with starving babies and a reminder that China now has more billionaires in the U.S. And yet somehow workers in both countries don't have health care. I mean, they did put uh, some of these people behind bars, which is more than happened with Nestle, I think. So, yeah, yeah, that's something. Yeah, I mean, but it's, you know, like they're, they're doing you know, this, this is one of the things that that's different about the CCP than, than the U.S. is that like, OK, politicians in the U.S. like do not fear us. Like, they're not afraid. Yeah. They just, yeah. Whereas, you know, Chinese politicians, like, you know, like, they they actually understand that, like, a large numbers of people, like, massing and opposing them is dangerous. And that means that, you know, they, they do these kind of, like, symbolic, like, oh, they'll, they'll arrest 12 people. They'll, they'll, they'll shoot, like, a cabinet member. But, you know, they do that so that they, they do that and then they, they, they throw enough people under the bus until people sort of stop being angry. And then, you know, just everything goes on as normal. And it's... It's extremely bleak. Yeah. Uh.
That was depressing, Chris. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Huh. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, in some ways it was depressing, but I think we do have to keep in mind that a lot of value was created for 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 people with with money. Yeah. A lot of, you know, there there's a lot of like, just don't just think of the dead children. Think of the um think of the economic stimulus created by their deaths, you know? That's 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 the real way we can honor their sacrifice. And their and Keynesian stimulus yeah, Keynesian stimulus via payouts to dead to the parents of dead babies. This is how this is how yeah, you do economics. It's a, it's a perfect closed loop economy. Well, fun. Okay. Got any pluggables to plug, Chris? Um, if you want to see me complain more about all of this, um, I'm at itbchr3 on Twitter or the Ice Must Be Destroyed guy. Um, yeah, I, I I have I have a Substack called. The long 21st century. Jesus, it has been a long century so far. I am I support kind of moving up to the 22nd already. Like, let's just do it. I'm down we're, to we're skip. Done. <laughs> we're done with the 21st. Yeah, yeah, I'm down to skip. Let's let's roll along. Um, Yeah, so, I don't know. This has been Behind the Bastards. You can find us where you just found us, because you already know where to find us. So, like, why am I telling you where you can find us? You've been here before. You're, you're here right now. Um... <laughs> Yeah, I have a book called After the Revolution. You can find it on atrbook.com as a free EPUB. You can find it as a podcast at After the Revolution. Um, so, so check that shit out. And uh, I don't know. Go, uh, go buy some baby formula. And don't drink it because it'll make you pee rocks. Hey, everybody. Initially, uh, I was going to plug the GoFundMe for the sequel to my book, um, After the Revolution, which you can find at atrbook.com. But um, here in the Pacific Northwest, we're having an unprecedented heat wave, and it's causing disastrous conditions, life-threatening conditions for a lot of uh, houseless people, a lot of people without air conditioning, Um, particularly in the city of Salem. um, Activists everywhere have been kind of gathering to try and um, mitigate, uh, set up cooling stations, hand out cold drinks, do things to help people get their temperature down. Um, I want to try and raise funds for the Free Fridge of Salem, um, which are doing cooling stations in the capital of Oregon, uh, Salem. So if you go to Venmo at Free Fridge Salem, uh, that's Venmo at Free Fridge Salem, and send them a couple of bucks, they could really use it. Um, Local government has destroyed a number, like police particularly have destroyed a number of water and cooling stations they've set out. Um, it's, you know, we're not going to be in triple digit heats for the next couple of days after I'm recording this on Monday, but it's still going to be very hot. People still need this. So please Venmo at Free Fridge Salem if you have uh, the wherewithal and the financial resources to do so. One more time, the Venmo is at Free Fridge Salem. Thanks. Bean Dad, The Dress. 30 to 50 feral hogs. If you knew what any of those were, you spend too much time online. And hey, I do too. 16th Minute of Fame is a new weekly podcast hosted by me, Jamie Loftus. And every week we take a closer look at an internet character of the day. Who are they? What made them so notorious? How did the internet or the algorithm choose them? And what does a person do when they're suddenly confronted with more attention than the human psyche can handle? Listen to 16th Minute of Fame on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy, and I'm your host, Elliot Connie. 
Jay is the woman in this dynamic who is currently co-parenting two young boys with her former partner, David. David, he is a leader. He just don't want to leave me. But how do you lead a woman? How do you lead in a relationship? Like, what's the blueprint? David, you just asked the most important question. Listen to Family Therapy on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Tamika D. Mallory. And it's your boy, my son, the general. And we are your host of TMI. And catch us every Wednesday on the Black Effect Network, breaking down social and civil rights issues, pop culture, and politics in hopes of pushing our culture forward to make the world a better place for generations to come. Listen to TMI on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. That's right. I'm Diosa. And I'm Mala. We are the creators of Locatora Radio, a radiophonic novella, which is a fancy way of saying... A, a podcast. podcast. Welcome to Locatora Radio Season 9. Love, love at first, first listen. listen. This season, we're falling in love with podcasting all over again. With new segments, correspondence, and a new sound. Listen to Locatora Radio as part of the Michael Dura Podcast Network, available on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.